Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. That's great. You can go ahead and have a seat. It's so good to be uh, here with you in person. So good to have you joining us online. I'm really excited to jump into the passage that Pauline just read for us. And it's probably a decent time for me to tell you that one of the main reasons that I wanted us to spend uh, uh, the majority of our fall looking at this letter that uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote to the church in Thessalonica is that I thought it would serve all of us really well to learn from a community that was absolutely overflowing with what I'm going to call today um, spiritual vitality, right? This church in Thessalonica was so spiritually alive that people were talking about them literally all over the place, right? That's what Paul's reflecting on in verses 7 through 9. He says, as a result, you, the church in Thessalonica, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, the fact that they became an example to Macedonia was no small thing, but in some ways that makes sense because Macedonia uh, was kind of the name for the northern region of Greece. That's where Thessalonica was located. So that's kind of like, you know, saying, hey, what God is doing in the district is being talked about all over the DMV area. Like that was kind of their hometown. But Achaia, that was southern and western Greece. That's a pretty significant accomplishment when this little, embryonic church in the northeast corner of Greece has really got a reputation all over the country, which not to insult your intelligence, you obviously know this, but getting some sort of national reputation before social media and all that kind of stuff was significantly harder. But it's not just that what they were doing was being talked about all over Greece, right? For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. In other words, Paul, the guy who planted the church in Thessalonica, he was one of the three guys who got the church there started, he would show up in different cities, which at this point means he'd been to Berea, he'd been to Corinth, he'd been to a couple of other places. And every time he rolls into town, he doesn't need to tell people what's happening in Thessalonica. They're telling him, they're like, hey man, have you heard about what God is doing in Thessalonica? And Paul's like, yes, I was, I was there on day one. But how great is that, um, that the word of what God was doing was already preceding the apostle Paul? I mean, in a very, very short period of time, this church had developed an incredible influence in Greece, right? I don't know that any of us know the exact number, but it is um, an astonishing thing to think about um, the amount of time and energy and money that the American church invests in trying to manufacture that kind of influence, Right? And my goal this morning is not to preach against the American church, tempting though it may be at times, but to remind us that when it comes to spiritual vitality, 
When it comes to the things that our souls are most hungry for, spiritual vitality can never be manufactured. It can only be received, right? We can manufacture a lot of things that give us the illusion of vitality, but more often than not, we're just deluding ourselves and starving our own souls in the process. Right? That's why it's possible to walk away, go to sort of the epic Christian event and walk away feeling more empty than you did on the way in, or at least give it a couple of days and that's where you end up. Right? We spend so much time hoping that if we get the right blend of music and lights and the right number of people in the room and a little air conditioning, which Lord knows wouldn't hurt, and get all the right factors together, we'll finally receive spiritual vitality. And the reality is that there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with churches that are on social media. We're on social media. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what we really long for doesn't have anything to do really with any of that. Right? The text we're going to look at today shows us exactly how God breathes spiritual vitality into the life of the church. And the good news is that you and I, like us, as Restoration City Church in 21st century Washington, D.C., we have access to the same two things that set the Thessalonian church on fire 2,000 years ago. So as we look at this text, I want you to hear it on two different levels, right? In one sense, it's a roadmap for us recapturing a sense of spiritual vitality individually. Right? In one sense, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on our own lives and ask, to what extent are we just going through the motions of Christianity? To what extent are we just doing things out of dry religious obligation? To what extent are we trying to follow a script that somebody else wrote for our life? Or to what extent do we feel a sense of joy, a sense of being spiritually alive? To what extent do we feel personally a sense of spiritual vitality? Because I believe that this text is a roadmap for us to be able to recover that sense of vitality. It's also a roadmap for us as a church, right? That's one of my other prayers for today is that God will use this text to point us towards spiritual vitality as a local church, right? You and I are following Jesus in a day and age where it is far too easy to feel embattled as a follower of Christ. And I would love to move us a little bit more in the direction of feeling emboldened as a result of our time and God's word together. So let's jump in. Let's talk about where this sense of spiritual vitality comes from. Like, what, where, where do you receive this from? And what we're going to see is that spiritual vitality comes from a synergy between the gospel and the Holy Spirit, right? That's what Paul says in verse 4 and 5, and then we'll talk about it. But verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only. It wasn't simple verbal proclamation. It wasn't just doctrinal truth, but it also came in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full 
assurance, right? What Paul is saying is that in order to experience spiritual vitality, we need to experience both the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the third person of the Trinity, which means that doctrinal truth without the Spirit of God will never lead us to spiritual vitality. Right? That's why you can find churches where everybody owns three systematic theologies, but there's absolutely no life in the place. Right? Where you can find groups of Christians that would ace a theology exam, but there's no joy, there's no hope, there's no love, there's no sense of exuberance for God. On the other hand, you can also run into communities of faith where it seems like there might be tremendous power, but that power isn't in any way tethered to sound doctrine. And that, all by itself, isn't going to lead us to spiritual vitality either. Now, just to be super clear, when I talk about power that's not tethered to doctrine, that's not me like subtweeting charismatic churches, right? That, that we live in a day and age where people make their point via subtweet, and that's not what I'm doing. Maybe it's me, you know, calling out some of the excesses in Pentecostalism, but there's a lot that we could learn from our charismatic brothers and sisters. I think what I'm really taking aim at is what's far more pervasive in our world today, which is just empty hype, where everything looks epic on Instagram, but it's a version of religion that is synthetic. It's a ver version of religion that's been made up. Right? You got to have gospel and spirit, truth, and the divine power of God. And when those two things come together, you find absolutely explosive potential for spiritual vitality. Now, in and of itself, the verbal message of the gospel contains power. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. However, Paul, in his life and ministry, Paul also wrote Romans, he did not just rely on the inherent power of the gospel. When he went to Corinth, he described his ministry this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Wherever Paul went, he went confident that the message of the gospel had power. Right? Charles Spurgeon describes it as a lion that you just have to let loose and it'll do its work. You don't have to defend the gospel. There's power in the gospel. But Paul said, yes, but if I'm not filled with the power of the Spirit, that power of the gospel is never going to come to life in people's hearts, in people's minds, in people's soul. But when we can bring gospel and we can bring Spirit into this synergistic relationship with each other, right? Synergy is this thing where you take two things, bring them together, and they accomplish more together than they could ever do on their own. When we bring gospel and Spirit into a synergistic relationship, we finally start to move towards spiritual vitality. And here's the thing, that sort of synergy between gospel and spirit is absolutely essential. You have to have it, and, and here's why. You have to have that kind of spiritual synergy because the claims of the gospel are so extraordinary that we need God's help 
in order to believe them. Right, which actually brings us to kind of a, a key point, um, certainly one that's important to me as a preacher. Right? We need God's help in order to believe the gospel, but we shouldn't need God's help in order to understand the gospel. Right? That I spend a lot of my time in my life trying to make the gospel understandable and accessible. Right? That we sometimes overcomplicate this thing that we call faith in Jesus and we lose sight of the forest for the trees. Right? The goal is that every time you come here on a Sunday or every time you open the scripture for yourself, you walk away with a sense of, huh, I get it. I understand it, sure, maybe I have some questions, and I'd love to know something about the original language, and I'd love to know something about the context, but wow, like, I kind of get like, what this book is saying. Right? It, it shouldn't take a miracle to understand the gospel, but I promise you this, it will always take one to believe it. Right? To really grab hold of what the scripture is saying, so much so that we're willing to build our life off of it, that requires a miracle. That requires the power of God. But it's also such an important point for us because it reminds us that the goal of Christianity is not to simply understand the gospel. Right? Jesus didn't die on the wood of the cross just so we could get to a point of intellectual ascent. Jesus died for us so that we could believe the truth of the scripture so much so that we're willing to build our lives on it, which is why in verse 4, Paul says that genuine faith in Christ always requires God to choose us before we choose him, that God has to make the first move towards us, that God has to begin to awaken something inside of us in order for us to be able to appreciate the claims of the gospel. And, and what I'd like to do for a couple of minutes is just walk us through four of the claims about the gospel that Paul makes in this passage. They're not going to be hard to understand. They're going to be easy to understand. But if by the power of God's Spirit, they could settle into our hearts to the point that we truly believe them, and they would refresh all of our souls and pour a sense of vitality back into us. But I'm telling you, it takes a miracle to believe that we are loved by God. And that's where Paul starts. Verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. In some ways, it's the most simple statement of theology out there. First John tells us that God is love. John 3 tells us that God so loved the world. Paul's reminding us here that we are loved with God. But I think what a lot of us do is when we hear that we are loved by God, we do almost a little automatic find and replace in our own minds. The scripture says love, but you hear tolerate. The scripture says love, but you hear accept. The scripture says love, but you hear God is willing to deal with you. And I would love for every single one of us here today to understand that in the eyes of God, you are not a problem to be solved. You're not a rebellion to be managed. You are this beloved creature that he made and that he has known from before the beginning of time and he knows all the days of your life and he has plans for you and hopes and dreams and Ephesians 2 says that you are a masterpiece of God right that God that God the creator of the universe he truly delights in you 
right, that the creator of the universe truly enjoys you. He feels incredible affection for you. He wants to spend time with you, that he's interested in you. Right? When you think about God's love for you, don't think just doctrinal truth, as important as that is. I'm not trying to take that out of the equation at all. But I want you to think about that feeling that you have when your best friend comes into the room and you haven't seen him or her in a while. Or that way you feel about your spouse when they're at their best or when you're at your best. That way you feel about your kids. Right? That sense of overwhelming affection, that sense of I would do anything for you. That's how God feels about you. You're not just a problem to be managed. You are beloved. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are a beloved child of God. And your Father in heaven is crazy about you. And you can write that down really simply on a sheet of paper. But it takes the Spirit of God to make that come alive in our hearts. And when it does, man, it starts to shift everything. Now, you're like, okay, I get it. I'm loved by God. But, man, I can be such a mess at times. Exactly. That's why we have to move on to the fact that not only are we loved by God, but we've also been rescued by Jesus. That's where Paul ends, verse 10. Right? This Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Because we know that God is loving, and because he is loving, he is also holy and just, right? He is a God who hates sin. He's a God who hates all of the ways that we have damaged the world he has created. He is a God who hates the ways that we treat each other at times, right? Which we feel great about every time we're wrong. Right? Every time somebody sins against us, we are all about the holiness and justice of God. Because we're like, okay, God, why don't you go ahead and settle the score with her? Why don't you deal with her? I will sit back. You take care of her sinful little self. Obviously, it gets more uncomfortable when we point the finger at ourselves. Where we're like, oh, but when it comes to my sin, let's not do the holy justice thing. Let's just get back to love. Right? Because holiness and justice feel a little bit more threatening when they start to intersect with our lives. Because there is something in all of us that knows that there's no possible way that we meet the standard of a divine and holy God. Right? Like, if there really is a God, and that God looks at my life and is like, awesome, John, you're crushing it. I would be so disappointed in that God because I know I'm not. I know there's so many moments where I'm getting it wrong. There's so many moments where I'm not living up to my expectations, yet alone the expectations of heaven. Like, don't let anybody talk you into some cheap, lower version of God that he's just looking at your life being like, oh, you're doing great. No, God is loving, but he's deeply aware of how broken we are. He's deeply aware of the extent of our rebellion. But because he is loving, he sends his son to die in our place, to be buried and to rise again on the third day. That Jesus goes and he endures the torture of the cross so that God could look at us and forgive us of our sin because it's been paid for on the wood of that cross. That God can say, I still love you. I know what you've done. I I know all of it. And I've dealt with it. You know, over the course of the week, while I was getting ready for this, I couldn't help thinking about this rescue of Jesus as it relates to 
what we all watched unfold at the end of August in Afghanistan. Right, there was this incredible kind of rescue mission that happened as planes flew in to take American citizens and people who had served and helped our country out of Kabul. And I, I couldn't help but asking myself, what must it have felt like to be on one of those last flights out of Kabul? To sit there on a plane and to know that somebody had come for you. That somebody had stepped into a world of chaos and a world of violence and a world of pain and a world of suffering to do for you what you could never do on your own, to rescue you and to carry you to a whole new life. Imagine what it would have felt like to sit on one of those planes and say, that's my story. Somebody came for me. Somebody fought their way through the crowd to grab me. Somebody put me on a plane. Somebody's carrying me to a whole new life. And friends, that's the story of the gospel, that Jesus did that for us, that he leaves heaven to come to earth to endure the brutality of our world and the brutality of the cross to grab hold of us and to carry us to a whole new life. Of course, if we really want to lean into that analogy, we would recognize that Jesus comes not just as the pilot of the plane, but would also be very much with the 13 service members that gave their life outside the gate. So he doesn't just fly in and snatch people up. He goes and gives his life, not outside the gates of Karzai Airport, but outside the gates of the city of David, where he offers his life for you and for me. And he says, come on, you're free now. The chains of sin and death, they don't hold you down anymore. You get to come and live a whole new life. Of course, the question is whether or not we're actually living a whole new life which is why we need to be reminded of the promise that this gospel transforms us. We talked a lot about this last week, so I'll just touch on it really quickly. But verse 9, Paul says, look, this gospel, by the power of the Spirit, caused the Thessalonian church to turn to God from idols, to serve the living and the true God. So when we experience the spiritual vitality that God has for us, it reorients what we value in life. It redraws the blueprint for our lives. We're not just the same old people who have been rescued in order to go ahead and live the same old life. We become a new creation and we are invited to a whole new life where we are increasingly conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And the weight of the gospel and the power of the spirit is so significant that it's able to redraw the map of our heart, that we find ourselves caring about new things. We find ourselves valuing new things. We find ourselves living differently, that we used to to live for our career, we used to live for the weekend, we used to live for our bank account, we used to live for physical pleasure, we used to live for whatever, and God says, no, no, now you're going to live for me, and now you're going to become more and more like me, and you're going to become more and more like the person I always created you to be. But again, when we look at our own brokenness and we look at the things that we know about ourselves that we've never confided in another person, it takes the power of God to convince us that Jesus himself would want to transform the darkest areas of our soul. 
Yet, we're called, final promise, to live with joyful anticipation. Verse 10. We wait for his son from heaven. We wait for the second coming of Christ, which we often just sort of put as like this little footnote. Paul's going to talk about it a lot in this letter. Um, He's going to talk a lot about sort of the end of time and sounds weird to us. We don't usually talk about it or we do. We just kind of make it a little hallmark moment of like, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back at some point. That'll be yay for Jesus when he comes back here. But let's just be reminded that when the gospel talks about the son who comes from heaven, the gospel is talking about Jesus coming back to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. He's talking about the reality that at some point in time that none of us know, Jesus will come back And Jesus will truly make everything right with our world. That when Christ rules and reigns over his kingdom, there will be no more COVID, there will be no more cancer, no more poverty, racism, fear, no more abused children, no more death. That in fact, Revelation says that God himself will come And he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And God will be with us, and we will be with God. That there is an incredible future waiting for each of us who are in Christ. And that as we anticipate that, as we look forward to that, it should fill us with joy even in a world that is rebelling so dramatically from the rule and reign of Christ. Now, in a sense, here's the point of the sermon. It's not hard to understand any of this, right? You're, you're loved by God. You've been rescued by God. God wants to transform you. God wants us to live with joyful anticipation, right? You write, write all four points on the back of a napkin. Man, but to believe that, to really grab hold of that, oh, that requires the power of the Spirit of God in our lives, right? That requires the grace and the mercy of the God who loves you and rescued you. Now, a lot of the goal for today was to give us a really clear sense of where spiritual vitality comes from, the synergy of gospel and spirit that enables us to believe the truth about God and ourselves. But I also want to end by giving us a clear picture of what spiritual vitality looks like. Because at least in this section of Scripture, I don't think this is the comprehensive description, but in this section, Paul reminds us that spiritual vitality looks like conversion and mission. And it looks like conversion and mission being joined together. Verse 6 and 7, you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when... In spite of severe persecution, the odds were not in favor of the Thessalonians becoming Christians. Everything in the culture was going to try to lead them away from Jesus. Everything in the culture was going to say, it's too risky. No way. You're going to be judged, alienated, persecuted. It's going to go poorly for you if you follow Jesus. Yet, they see the beauty of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. They're like, I get it. You're not going to be happy, but we're in. We're going to believe this stuff. We're going to build our lives around it. You welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. That's what conversion means. It doesn't mean just agreeing to sign on the dotted line that you promised to come to church every Sunday. It means, wait, I see it. I see the beauty of the gospel. And I want to joyfully receive this rescue of Christ. As a result, 
you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, which brings us right back to where we started. Now, here's what's astonishing. Paul is writing this letter, you can debate it a little bit, but somewhere between one and three years after he was first in Thessalonica. Right, so th this church is filled with nothing but baby Christians. It's a baby church. And it seems like they pivot from this moment of being awakened to the beauty of the gospel to being an example for others, that their faith goes out throughout Macedonia and Achaia and throughout the known Mediterranean world. Right, that it's not that they came to Christ and then they spent five or six years getting themselves together and read a couple of evangelism books and went to a couple of seminars and wallowed in some guilt for a while and then finally got up the courage to tell their neighbor that they go to church on a Sunday morning and the neighbor looked at them like they were crazy so they didn't talk to anybody else about Jesus for the next three years. But then nine years later into their Christian journey, they're like, really, this is crazy. If I don't talk to people about Jesus, what kind of Christian am I? And people are gonna make fun of me. Okay, I'm gonna try it again. I'm gonna tell the people at my work, didn't go great in the neighborhood, so I'll try the pagans at work. I'll tell them that I go to church, see how that goes, tell them about Jesus, and just kind of live this life of like, ooh, I'm embarrassed of my faith. Remember Romans 1? Paul goes, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. The very thing that the world is hungering for lives inside you and me. And, and, and the Thessalonians just sort of automatically make this pivot from, wait a minute, if this gospel is true, and I'm going to build my life off this, then i got to tell other people about this. There's no way that I can keep this to myself. Now, if you're not at the point where you've decided you believe it, no way am I asking you to go share that with somebody else, right? I'm never going to ask you to go tell other people about something that you're not sure you believe. But if you say you believe it, and you believe that you've been rescued by God, and you believe you're loved by God, and you believe that God is actively at work in your life, and you believe there's this glorious future waiting for everybody who's in Christ, this moment where God himself is going to come and wipe away every tear from every eye. If we really believe that, it just makes no sense to be like, and I'm so grateful, but forget all the rest of you. Right? It, it makes sense to find winsome, normal, natural. I'm not saying go throw tracks at people at the metro. I, I, I'm not saying start writing scripture verses, you know, in the elevator of your apartment building, go in, sneak into everybody's office and change their screensaver to John 3.16. Like, don't go be weird about it. But why would we not live with a desire for other people to experience what we've experienced? You know, I've done a lot of things wrong in my Christian life, but I will always be grateful for my first day as a follower of Jesus. Was, I didn't know anything about anything. It was just the grace of God the way it happened to work in my life. I'd had friends that had been sharing the gospel with me for about four years. Um, and then finally one day, a, a mutual friend was here in D.C. I was an undergrad at the time, and he invited me to go out to breakfast, and he shared the gospel with me. He didn't do it any differently than he ever had before. It wasn't like, you know, the power was in the presentation or the moment or the fact that he bought a college student breakfast, which is, you know, if you want to win a college student over to anything, just feed him. Um, it, it wasn't that. It was just that was the day where the gospel was accompanied by the power of the Spirit in my life, and it all made sense, and I was like, I can't believe it. If Jesus is willing to rescue me, I'm in. All right? I, I want a seat on that plane. 
And I knew in a moment that everything had changed for me. I knew in a moment that everything had shifted for me. Um, so I, I left our breakfast meeting. We had met at the uh, Conne- uh, Courtyard Marriott on Connecticut Avenue, right across from the Washington Hilton. I knew everything had changed. I went cruising down Connecticut Avenue trying to find a Bible, um, found my way into Kramer Books. Not a big Bible section in Kramer Books. Um, uh, there's like a couple, like three or four on a small lower shelf. And I grabbed one, like a red back cardboard kind of thing. For the first couple of years as a Christian, it looked like I stole my Bible from a Methodist church, which was cool. Um, had that kind of running around with, with that whole thing. Super excited. But I I knew everything had changed. And and nobody told me to do it. I just remember taking all of my roommates out to dinner. Right? I was a junior in college. There were like four or five of us that had an apartment. There were technically five, but one of them spent more time at his girlfriend's house, so we never knew how to do the math on that one. But um, there were four or five of us. And I remember coming home and being like, man, let's go out to dinner. And I took them all to the Cheesecake Factory, uh, which was a big deal back then um, and far cooler than it is today. Um, And we went there and did our thing. And they were like, what's going on? Like, I don't know, what are you, what's, what's happening? Like, what's, what, what are we doing here, John? And I was like, man, I don't, <laughs> I don't know much about what happened today. But I know that I prayed with some guy, and I am going to follow Jesus, and I've been reading the Bible all afternoon. I just know my life has changed. And that you could tell they were super uncomfortable. They were like, uh, okay, like, are you going to get weird? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never bought all of you dinner before, so that's weird. Maybe it'll be like a good weird. I, I don't know. Right? And I can't tell you, you're like, and I led them all to Christ over dessert. Well, first of all, I couldn't afford dessert. And second of all, no. Nobody came to faith that night. Nobody came to faith the rest of that school year. There was just something in me that was like, man, I want to share this with other people. And the reason that I'm making a big deal out of that is because I don't want to see us as a church give up on that kind of spiritual vitality and simply settle for run-of-the-mill consumeristic Christianity. Right, the goal of the church is not to shuffle a dwindling Christian population back and forth between churches that are largely dead or largely hype. Right, I don't want us to be a church that's largely dead or largely hype. We want to be a place where the power of the gospel and the power of the spirit come together. Where we start to move on this journey from feeling embattled to feeling emboldened. And to actually go out and tell other people about this truth that we hold dear. Right, I'm saying it because we're going to have a congregational meeting where we talk about important things. But I want to remind us that spiritual vitality isn't about budgets or venues or programming. That feeling spiritually alive, the thing that you and I care about most, it comes when a community of people join together to experience the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. So what we're going to do today as a way of giving us all some space to respond to that is spend a few minutes praying together. Rather than Chris and the whole team coming back up to lead us in a song, we're going to take a few minutes to pray. Now, if you're here in the room, I want to invite you to do one of two things. If you want to pray by yourself, you are more than welcome to do that, just to enjoy some time with God. But if you came with a small group of family, friends, roommates, whatever, and you're already sitting next to some people, if you want to huddle together and pray together, I think that would be incredible to be able to experience that. 
Now, I know there's a whole bunch of you that are watching at home right now. You're joined with us, and this is not, oh, good, I get to kill the feed early moment. This is, no, no, we're a church, we're together, and we're going to pray. You're going to pray at home the same way that we're going to pray here. If you're watching by yourself, you can pray by yourself and know that God is with you. If you're watching with a little group, you can huddle up together. And in both locations, we're going to put three different verses on the screen. And I'm going to ask you to allow these verses to guide your time in prayer. All right, the first is a challenge from the book of Revelation, where God is simply coaxing his church back to our first love of saying, hey, let go of all of the things that sometimes distract you, all of the things that can tempt your souls to repent and to come to God and be reminded of the zeal that we had for him in those first moments of faith. Now, I will also say that if you're here today and you are like, man, I have not yet experienced those first moments of faith. You know, the thing you described about being up breakfast and you'd heard it all before, but then somehow that was the day that God was doing something and you just believed it. Some of you could be having that day today. And if if that's the case, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Just a minute, everybody's going to close their eyes and be praying and be huddled up in groups and nobody's going to be paying attention. But John Michael, one of our pastors is kind of in the back corner over there. And if you're just like, man, I need to learn more about this. I think I'm having this day. I think I want to be a Christian. I think I just need to talk to somebody. And everybody else starts to pray. You can just get up and go spend some time with him. And he would love to talk with you, pray with you, whatever would serve you well. I also want us to spend some time praying through Psalm 20. Just reminding ourselves that our trust as a church is not in budgets or venues or programming or cameras or Wi-Fi connections or any of that stuff. It's in the power of God. And then finally, the verse that I mentioned in the sermon, that God would use us as a community, as a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so I wanna invite you to start praying where you are here at home, here in the room or at home. I'm gonna give you a few minutes and then I'm gonna come and I'm gonna pray for all of us. But don't miss out on this chance to connect with God. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. And God, I pray for this church. I pray for us as a group of men and women who want to know you. There's a group of men and women who want to be spiritually alive, who want to come back to our first love, who want to have a deep and abiding trust in you. God, that you would fill our hearts today with fresh faith, with fresh desire for you with fresh determination to make a difference in the world around us, with fresh joy in your plan for our lives to bear much fruit and to prove that we are your disciples. So Lord God, 
just asking that you would do for us what you did for them 2,000 years ago. God, just lead us to a place of spiritual vitality. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.